Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. It's good to be with you today. Joining me as always are both of my co-hosts this week. I'm very excited about that. I hope you are too, listeners. Bailey Perkins-Wright, hello. How are you? Hi, Andy. I am great. Good to see your smiling face. And uh, Dr. Scott Melson, hello, sir. What's up, man? You know, uh, you said joining you as always. I feel like it's been it's been eons, right? Yeah. Uh, since uh, since I at least have been here, it's been a very hectic. Uh, a lot of stuff going on personally, uh, travel, some work stuff. Work has been, uh, you know, good, busy, but uh, but very busy. So, uh, you know, glad uh, glad to be here. Good. Yeah, it always was a a, a miss. A miswording there not always because clearly last week neither of you were here it was just me and the league of women voters well nonetheless i and i believe our listeners are excited for you guys to be back um and gosh so much has happened um in the last few weeks we've learned that the governor has been um, secretly quietly raising money to build a new governor's mansion he actually doesn't live in the mansion i had to correct that with my kids because they <laughs> we were driving to east side pizza the other day and they were like is that the governor's house i said yeah it's where they live and that after i heard the news i was like uh sorry he doesn't live there big big uh, correction and then um i don't know i'm sure most of our listeners are well aware of that story so we may not need to spend a lot of time on that um it's been it's been well litigated on the twitter to the extent that anything can be well litigated on twitter i guess um but I, we have a lot of polling that's out, and that relates to a number of races, most notably the senatorial races, um, the governor's race, the state superintendent's race, and then um, some of the down-ballot stuff. So we'll, I think we're going to spend probably the bulk of this uh, podcast talking about the gubernatorial debate that race, maybe some of the politics and sentiment around it and kind of give our thoughts on, you know, if we could read the tea leaves to our insights there. And, uh, and then, and then that'll be most of it, right? Does that sound good to you guys? That sounds good. And I think it's safe to warn our listeners, just brace yourself over the next two weeks, because there will be a lot of resources pouring into our state, which means that your TVs and your mailboxes and your emails and your text messages are going to be dominated by a lot of campaign material. So, which is not necessarily a bad thing. That means there's more saturation to reach the voters on a number of races, but just brace yourself because it is going to be um, a sprint to November 8th. That's right. And if you are someone who is registered as an independent or if your voting history does not indicate that you're like a super voter for either party, there's a good chance you're going to get an extra dose. Like I checked my mail just before we started recording and had several mailers from candidates of both parties for a bunch of races that I normally don't get any mailers from. And from talking to some of my friends who work in the political world, everyone send in stuff to print this week. So the next two weeks is just going to be a a deluge of recyclables coming to your mailbox. Yeah, can we go ahead and uh, can we go ahead and just put the old, put the old little that little e next to this episode because <laughs> uh, there's there's I you, Bailey, you said uh, listeners brace yourselves. I 
I assumed that was in preparation for the next 60 minutes uh, <laughs> of, of uh, kind of where, wherever, wherever this, wherever this tech, wherever this takes us. It's th- it's three fifteen on Friday afternoon. And for the first time in several weeks, I have a cocktail at three fifteen on Friday afternoon. So uh, we're just going to, we're just going to cut loose over here. Scott already has his finger in the air preparing to yell. <laughs> and another thing. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'll well, tell you um, should we start with, um, the start with the polling and then get down to the debate. How does that sound? We kind of lay the landscape out. Um, about two weeks ago, the five largest tribes came together to make a historic endorsement for one candidate together. They endorsed Joy Hoffmeister for the race for governor. To my knowledge, they've never come together like that before, right? That and is you correct. Even have former tribal leaders coming out with their own personal endorsement. So there really is this unified front to support a gubernatorial candidate, which is incredibly rare. Yeah. And there's outward uh, acknowledgement that with that support comes monetary support, right? So that's, that's a big deal for the tribes to be unified on that front. Yeah. Yeah, you know it's it's super interesting. You can write Bailey. They've never they've never done this before, and and that announcement uh, led to something that I I personally have never seen before. Um, so uh, Governor Stitt's campaign manager Donnell Harder uh, was was asked if she had any, you know, thoughts or response about this uh, this endorsement, and she said that just it's no surprise. It just shows <clears throat> just shows what we already know what we already know that Superintendent Hoffmeister is uh, in bed with all the special interests and. Uh, Unlike unlike the governor, it's the first time I've ever heard that um, our state's five largest uh, native uh, nations and their I don't know million or so inhabitants um, or citizens described as a special interest group um, as opposed to you know Oklahomans or um, tribal tribal members. It's just it was it was a very um, you know I think the governor's campaign that it's kind of the state that they're in right now <clears throat> they're trying they are trying very very much um they're trying very hard to appear that they are very much in control exactly where they want to be nonplussed nothing's bothering them when i i think <coughs> excuse me i'm gonna be coughing every once in a while just so y'all know i'm on the tail end of the rona i made it two and a half years and it finally got me um um but i, I think what we're all hearing from 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 different sources some of the same sources um Governor Smith's campaign is not where they want it to be right now. They're not where they thought they would be. They're not where they think they should be. Um, and and really having to scramble a little bit uh, to try and to try and get over the finish line. You know, we've seen um, announcements recently that uh, the Republican Governors Association, the RGA, um, is putting a seven-figure uh, ad buy together in support of Governor Stitt. That's uh, in the millions of dollars, to, and that's going to air in the Tulsa and Oklahoma, uh, Tulsa and Oklahoma City metro areas specifically, um, trying to trying to knock down uh, Joy Hoffmeister a little bit. Um, um, it's uh, it's. It's an it's an it is an interesting period here in the governor's race. Um, you mentioned polling, Andy. Uh, I wanted to say that the most recent poll that we have um, from was it Amber Integrated that mm-hmm. that showed uh, that showed uh, uh, Superintendent Hoffman. Well, the last three polls have showed her up. She's been up by like one, three, and nine, depending on which pollster you read. Right? Is that accurate? Am I getting those numbers right? Let me pull it up. That sounds 
<clears throat> that does sound correct. It's been like an hour. And Scott, I guess if I scrolled back in our text thread, I sent you uh, made a little graph was... today that tracked their the polling for the candidates over the last three months. Yeah. And you, so and uh, 538 has this too. You can see a, a, a dramatic, um, uh, not regression to the mean, but like a closing of that gap. And then, you know, in, the, in a recent poll, Hoffmeister overtook Stitt and then it came back to being just ruled neck and neck there. Yeah. So the most recent poll is from the October 10th through the 12th. That's a send action that had Hoffmeister plus seven, Amber integrated October 13th through 15th. So almost the same time frame had Hoffmeister plus one. Um, American Viewpoint, which I had never heard of prior to this and haven't heard of since then, from September the 26th to the 28th, had Governor stood up by 15. Um, um, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's technically an internal poll, but it was a poll that was like commissioned by the campaign um, and also included a lot of language that sounded like the outcome was pretty fore, foregone. Um, but then prior to that, October 4 to 6, Sooner Poll had Hoffmeister plus 4 and Bruno Political Consulting February from, from the mid-September mid, uh, had Hoffmeister plus Plus one. So of the last five polls that we have, four of them show leads for Joy Hoffmeister. Um, um, so that's uh, that is interesting. Well, I wanted to go back with, to our conversation about our tribal nations. Um, there was a comment made during the debate, but I think it's a very important one to note that when we talk about our tribal nations, we are not talking about a monolith of people. This is not one tribe that thinks one way. There are, you know, 39 federally recognized tribes who all have um, diversity, not only just in culture and belief systems, but even just like, um, and the way they make decisions. Um, so across the, when you're thinking about ideology, there is a range even across the political spectrum when it comes to belief systems among tribal nations. So this is very, very telling that they're all coming together or at least the five tribes particularly are coming together um, to make a unified front on uh, a campaign stance because those are things that rarely happen because there's so much diversity when it comes to um, viewpoints and decisions um, of our sovereign nations. Because this isn't a supporting a liberal or supporting a conservative. This is about where tribal nations feel like their best investment could be when it comes to sovereignty, when it comes to um, the McGirt decision when it comes to working with the executive branch on things needed to make governments, because when we're talking about our tribal nations, we're not talking about a race of people. We're talking about governments in the same way we would be talking about if Oklahoma was working with France or some other country, right? So having those conversations are critical to Oklahoma's future, especially because tribal nations have, a, I think it's a almost $16 billion impact, economic impact to the state, right? Um, it's, it's critical that, and they're, one, they're the largest employers <laughs> in, in uh, Oklahoma, right? So it's critical that 
the nations have working relationships with leaders. And I think that's more of the dominating force, more so than supporting somebody of a specific political party. Yeah. No, I, I think um, the, I mean, the nuances of some of these conversations around this campaign are super interesting. And it's, I think for, you know, well, most Oklahomans, they don't follow it near as closely as, as the three of us do, or many of our listeners do. Uh, and so you kind of think about what are the, the top level takeaways that people might hear about um, when they hear about this stuff. You know, I, I think what we see in polling and in um, just kind of the, the broader sentiment is that people are upset with politicians, right? So like when you, the, the classic, you know, is the state or the country headed in the right direction, or the wrong direction, the wrong direction is like dominating um, a lot of polls and, and because people are kind of fed up with, and not just the direction our, our state is headed or our, our country's headed, but they're like fed up with the people who are leading it. Right. And so it's, there's that populist sentiment, Bailey, as you said, of just like, you know, vote these bums out. The hard is that you have to, you don't vote someone out, you vote for someone else, right? With the exception of the judicial retention ballot, but that's a whole other I was just about to say that's (laughs) not always true. But for the ones that people actually know about, right? You don't, you can't just vote no on Kevin Stitt. You have to vote for either Joy Hoffmeister, Natalie Bruno, Irvin Yen, like those are your other options. Or you could choose not to vote at all. And I wonder you know, if some of the disgust or disdain from voters might translate to that, like almost like apathetic sentiment where they're like, you know what? I just don't like any of these people. And we saw similar um, sentiment in 2016 in the presidential election where a lot of voters did not like Hillary Clinton nor Donald Trump because they just chose to sit it out or to, you know, in states where they could write it in, they wrote in Mickey Mouse or, you know, whoever, or they voted for some third party candidate, um, Jill Stein or whomever. And, and of course, in our current electoral environment, when we have two very dominant parties, when it comes to the to the ballot, a vote not for someone or, you know, a vote for a, a third party candidate or a write in or omission uh, of that vote is still a contribution to the success of one of these major candidates, most likely. And I'm willing to bet we're going to see differences in the number of votes in each of these races. Yeah, I, uh, I, I do think it though it does one. It does bear mentioning though, because because you're you're right, Andy, and that's a you know throw throw the bums all out is certainly a a, a common and popular sentiment. However, um, you know there is a key one one of many key differences between Hoffmeister and Stitt. Um, Stitt's favorability is underwater. Hoffmeister's is not right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, I know that there are a lot of Democrats who, you know, are casting a vote. I, I think a lot of Democrats are casting a vote against Kevin Stitt as much as they are casting one for Joy Hoffmeister, given that she is a self-professed moderate, given that until recently she was a Republican, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, even that being said, Lots of people like Joy Hoffmeister. Lots of people don't like Kevin Stitt. And that was true even in 2018, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Kevin Stitt and Joy Hoffmeister have been on the ballot uh, at the same time once. Not in the same race, but they were on the same ballot. She got more votes than him, 
like a lot more votes than him, like 75,000 more votes than him. So that means that there's like 75,000 people that voted for her that didn't vote for him for whatever reason. And that was true uh, before he spent four years um, doing whatever the hell he's been doing, you know? And so, um, you know, so all that to say, I, I think the other thing that, that, you know, we were talking about before we started recording um, that's important to, to note, you know, I don't know what's going to happen here in a couple of weeks. Um, you know, 538 still has that Kevin Stitt is the favorite to win re-election. I think that for demographic trends and historical trends and, you know, and, and, and there is every reason to assume that, yes, he is, he is still um, a significant favorite, but um, I will also say, and I, I think you guys would agree with me, um, the RGA, the National Republican Committee, like they don't throw millions of dollars into a race at the last minute based on public polling, mm-hmm. right? They're not doing this because Amber Integrated had a poll that showed Joy Hoffmeister up by four, right? They're not doing this because Ascend had a poll that showed her up by seven. Um, they're doing this because the Stitt campaign and the National Republican organizations have internal polling that show he is in some trouble um and and they see losing oklahoma as uh, the, the governor's race here as untenable and also tells me that they're worried about down, down ballot impacts um you yeah. know could this could this impact could this impact a senate race that is closer than you know it has than most people would expect could this impact um, probably not any House races um, with the way that redistricting was just done, but could it impact state legislative races? Could it impact the DA's race? I mean, can you imagine? Um, can you imagine if if Oklahoma in 2022 in a midterm election in which Democrats control all the levers of power in Washington, if Oklahoma elected not one but two um, statewide Democrats? Um, and there is there is a real possibility that that happens. Yeah, and you know, to, to your point about down ballot or just say uh, additional races, the, I think the calculus could be right that if if they run the risk of there being democratic excitement in a state like Oklahoma, such that the governor, or the state superintendent, potentially even a, a Senate seat, a U.S. Senate seat, could win. If that's the case, then there's a whole different kind of element here that the U.S. Senate is on the line right and they can't afford to lose what you know most people would would agree is a solidly red seat that they shouldn't have to worry about and now if they do well it makes it more difficult for them to direct money to the the battleground states right they've got a contentious governor's race in michigan they've got a contentious uh, governor's race in georgia um but we also see the the reverse happening right there's a contentious governor's race in oregon where a Republican could win in Oregon, which hasn't happened for 40 years, right? The, the Democrats have had a solid control there. And it's the like the reverse of Oklahoma. And I think that's a really interesting kind of juxtaposition of being like, what what is happening here? And I, um, on some level, I think it comes back to that um, populist like dissatisfaction with our electoral process, dissatisfaction with the current crop of candidates, that exists in many states across the country. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see how these major parties and even the minor parties respond because uh, in Oklahoma, this very well could be uh, one of the the elections where those third party candidates get just enough to to sway the outcome of the election. Um, I, I looked back through our voter history for the last 
several decades, right? I think I went back to 1970. And since 1970, there have been only, there have been two elections that were decided by fewer than 7,000 votes. The most, one was in 1970, and that was uh, a margin of only 2,100, 2,200 votes. And then in 2002, which is when Brad Henry was elected governor, he won by a thin margin of only about 6,800 votes. But that's because um, Gary Richardson ran as an independent and they and pulled conservative votes away from the Republican candidate, Steve Largent. And so it had that, quote, spoiler effect. If this race really is as close this year as the polling indicates, then a candidate like Bruno or Yen or them combined, if they're able to, you know, cumulatively get like 5% of the vote, right? Like that, that wouldn't, that would have had to go to one of the two major candidates. There's going to be a lot of conversation about what was the impact of these. And more importantly, it could result in um, a, the winner of this election, whomever it is, Stitt or Hoffmeister, winning. It's a legitimate win. I was going to do air quotes, but they actually would win, but with less than a majority of voters, right? Like they could win with 49. Plurality. Yeah. A plurality, which to frame it another way means that most voters didn't want them. They wanted somebody else. They just couldn't agree on who that other person was. It's almost like ranked choice voting would be a great, um, would be a great, you know, um, tool to use in a situation like that. If only no, there was something, you know, if only there, if only there was an election system that could be designed so that people could list their candidates in order of preference, and somehow that would be factored in to determining the ultimate winner. That's a. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, for our listeners, it's just key to remember. We say this oftentimes that this is going to be a numbers game. It's it's going to be about who shows up. So who shows up will determine the outcome of this race. And Andy, to your point about the uh, other candidates, the third party vote, it will all depend on who shows up to vote for them, right? Will they be the people who are frustrated with the Republican Party, right? that don't want to vote for a Democrat because then that benefits Joy Hoffmeister. That's fewer votes that go to the current governor. We also do see trends of independent voters in the state voting for Republicans. Will that mean that that benefit will help Governor Stitt, right? So it really will be a numbers game and seeing where even those throwaway votes where they where they skew and, and who would typically be voting where. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, in the polling, it shows that um, that Stitt is is retaining, I think, like 75 percent of Republican votes, while Hoffmeister is is retaining like 94 percent of Democratic votes. And that does leave out there the independents and libertarians and and the the difference there is that that means that Hoffmeister is pulling, you know, a twenty percent or so of Republican voters over to her side, and there's obviously based on registrations a lot more Republicans in this state. So, you know, the the truth is that Stitt could probably get seventy five percent of Republicans and win, right? Even if Joy got a hundred percent of the Democrats, because there's just 
I mean, Republicans outnumber Democrats almost two to one now. Uh, and and so it takes someone, well, perhaps like a, a former Republican running as a Democrat to pull some of those voters over there. And that will, there's a lot, I mean, I've seen a lot of folks on, on Twitter, AJ Griffin, right? A notable former state senator, friend of the pod. Um, I think her profile picture was recently changed to say like, I'm supporting joy. There's a lot of folks that we see that. And I expect we'll see many, many more as we near the election. Uh, also, who uh, one of the newspapers, oh, the Tulsa World enjoy, en- endorsed Joy this week for whatever, you know, those kind of endorsements still count. But it is interesting to see momentum shifting. And in many cases, I hate to say it, but like, you know, people like a winner. There's some folks who don't choose to hitch their wagon to either side until they think that side's going to win. Then they jump on the bandwagon. And I think over the next two weeks, we'll see a lot of that. We're also seeing the consequences of the levels of alienation that have happened over the past four years, right? So for example, there's been the controversy with Swadley's barbecue. During the debate, we saw some stepping back from those associations and more rhetoric about accountability, right? Um, we've already talked about um, the the tensions over the past four years with um, relations with our tribal nations. Uh, we've seen the battles with our school districts on whether or not, you know, keeping schools open as what's been promoted was the, the decision, right? That schools wanted made or, I mean, so there's just so many levels of, of conflict that are coming into play that could make the governor vulnerable. Yeah. So this is all, you know, we probably, cause we're, I was just, I was like, we're 25 minutes in and we haven't actually started talking about the main event yet. So this, the polls, the spending Bailey, what you're talking about in terms of, you know, the scandals, kind of just the state of the race right now, this is all context for um, the first and what will be the only, uh, gubernatorial bait uh, to debate that that happened in the 2022 race. This was on Wednesday night of this week, um, hosted by Nondoc and News Nine, uh, moderated by Trey Savage and Storm Jones, um, na- nationally televised on C-SPAN, uh, with only uh, with only a few uh, with only a few uh, technical glitches throughout. Um, uh, I'll, I'll I'll be honest. Um, I, uh, I watched the debate in preparation for our show today. I did not watch it live um, because I knew I was going to watch the replay in preparation for the debate and um, because my New York Yankees uh, are in the uh, ALDS. So, um, or the Wait, are you a Yankees so, fan? I thought you were a Cubs fan. So I married into a Cubs family. And so uh, when the, when the, when the Cubs are playing, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll fly the W go Cubs go uh, and, and, and enjoy the Cubbies. Um, but if you're going to force me to pick one baseball team. Um, so my, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, um, as far as we can tell was born in a, about 1890 <clears throat> was a huge baseball fan. And he was a baseball fan in the 1920s uh, in the era of like, those legendary Yankees uh, greats, and so my that's right. So my uh, so my my grandfather was a Yankees fan. He uh, raised my dad to be a Yankees fan, who raised me to be a Yankees fan. Uh, and while I while I don't follow baseball incredibly closely throughout the regular season, man, baseball base, baseball in October is one of the great joys in the world. So 
uh i i i watched i watched the debate today so that i could watch baseball on wednesday night um but we've all seen it uh we've all had a couple of days to digest uh to, to, to digest the twitter um I, I have i have some thoughts what do you, what do you got what did you guys think about the debate um i also didn't i watched about 20 minutes of it and then decided to use the time to set up some more text banking <laughs> um, campaigns for the next couple of weeks i thought it was a better use of my time and then cut up on twitter and saw i think all the uh, highlights and lowlights um my first of all I, I don't think that the debate is going to sway many voters it may have swayed some but i think that most folks who were anyone who's tuning in on the internet to watch a debate for the governor's race is probably someone who is very interested in local politics and has already kind of has their mind made up. However, the interesting thing that happened here is that it jumped, right? It wasn't, it wasn't just a streaming thing, right? The governor pretty, like it's pretty well known. Like he refused to do it if it was going to be televised locally. And so that, that kind of cuts down on the audience that watched it. So most Oklahomans did not watch the debate, but the fact that some national um, political correspondents were covering it both live that were watching it and tweeting about it. And then the Washington post the very next day had some headlines about it. Um, and they were not favorable for governor Stitt. And I think that is an interesting leap that does not often happen to Oklahoma, like our little local races here. Right. Well, when we think about how people receive news, it often isn't just from our local news sources. They are seeing many of the national news sources, wherever you know your political beliefs lie. So I think there is some significance of how our governor's race, which probably even six months ago likely wouldn't have been a conversation across the country, is now being elevated to um, a national prominence that um, you have um, folks, uh, uh, what do you call those folks? The, um, like pundits? The pundits, you know, bringing up in conversations. I mean, there's a video going of Howard Dean mentioning, you know, the the woman in Oklahoma running. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, um, yeah so it's, it's a really interesting time that two weeks before the election, um, it shows that there is um, a serious competitive race for the conversations that are taking place. Yeah, and I think to Scott's point earlier, right, that... Um, that, oh man, I just lost my train of thought there. What was your point earlier, Scott? This, um, oh, to Scott's point earlier is that this uh, is a race now that is not what Republicans bargained for, right? Like they did not anticipate the Oklahoma governor's race being so competitive that C-SPAN is covering it, that the New York Times and the Washington Post are writing about it in the middle of the week. Politico. Um, yeah, Politico had a story about it today, right? And the the headline through most of these stories is a specific data point, right? That Joy Hoffmeister during the debate said that Oklahoma has a higher crime rate than other states, one of the highest in the country, higher than New York, and the governor- And California. And California, right? And, and Governor Stitt's response was just like, it was like he got bamboozled. He was just like- He literally laughed because he and said to the people watching, do you really believe that Oklahoma has more crime than California and New York? Right. right? And- and a fact that is easily fact-checked, right? And even in that, 
the moderators are like, well, we'll, we'll fact check that. And indeed, brrr, here comes rolling out on national media of like, the governor doesn't even know the crime rate in his own state, basically. was right. the sentiment and, and, and here's, so, you know, we're kind of, we're kind of already getting into like the specifics and I am curious to hear what you all, what your overarching kind of takeaway of the debate was. And then we can highlight a few things, but, but that particular exchange really, that highlights for me what, what my kind of my my big takeaway was so from from start to finish i would actually say um you know not watching it live the first time or just kind of following on twitter and then watching it live today i actually felt like governor did did, a, did better in the first half than i than i was anticipating seeing i felt like you know um he uh, <laughs> i will never say that the governor was um in control of his facts but um because he usually isn't um but he i i feel like his presence was better um, during the first half, uh, to me, during the first half, he seemed more at ease, certainly than he did in the second half when he was just getting manhandled. Um, but the the exchange about crime illustrates to me what he, what I think maybe his single biggest problem was was that Superintendent Hoffmeister stated a fact. The governor's response was to laugh at her with this condescending shit eating grin that he's famous for, right? That's that, that like, I mean, we all know those guys, right? He has that asshole smirk on his face all the time. And his response to her was to smirk at her, laugh at her, act like she was some hysterical, crazy ass woman. Like, can you believe this person who like, she thinks that the crime rate is higher here than it is in New York and California. And he was completely wrong. So he made himself he made himself look like an asshole. And he would have looked like an asshole even if he was right. But he was an asshole who it turns out was wrong. And that's all that anyone is talking about is that he looked like a jerk. And he looked like a jerk through the entire thing. Every response, he never, he never um, had a rejoinder to her that was polite. He never had a... He never had a, you know, his his response to anything that Hoffmeister said was never to say, oh, well, that's interesting that you say that or, oh, well, that's 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 an interesting point you have. But here's why I disagree. His response to everything was to laugh and to smirk and act like she was crazy. Um, and so, you know, I, I myself, I'm, I'm, I'm not a woman. I've been married to one for 15 years. Um, um, I have a lot of friends that are women. Um you know, um, I, 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 so I certainly can't, I can't speak for anyone, but my sense is there are lots and lots and lots of women who have been talked to just like that by a condescending jerk of a man who treats them like they're stupid while he is in fact wrong the entire time. And to me, if I had one takeaway from the debate, forget, forget you know, policy prescriptions and arguments and all that kind of stuff. To me, he came off like a jerk, specifically in his treatment of the woman who's standing on stage as his equal. I actually don't think that his, uh, his presence or appearance had as much impact because of how Joy responded in the questions, right? Um, Joy Hoffmeister came across as a candidate who could stand her ground, who could match back and forth the energies, which I think gave, so regardless of how those 
smirks or remarks or whatever happened, Joy Hofmeister kept her composure, responded to those questions, and even in many instances, put the governor on the defense, right? Which I thought was um, something that continued to happen during um, the debate. And even just, I think one thing that, that was clear during the debate was that there were some one-liners that left that were pretty damaging from social media. One of those I left, for example, was about his top 10 slogan, right? That was something that had been championed over the past year, that everything had been measured through, um, that when we're talking about where Oklahoma is or where Oklahoma should be, that's been the litmus test that um, the state has utilized. And it was verbalized that as a CEO and leader of, you know, this entity that is the state government, right, you have to set aspirational goals and we're never going to hit it. And that piece, that five to 10 seconds has been looped all through social media. And it's leaving many people to ask, is that just a talking point or do we really believe that Oklahoma can't be a state that's thriving or can't be a place that that hits that top 10 concept? So I think there were some things that even in, you know, laughing or whatever that were said in response of defense that were harmful in people's trust of, well, was what you're saying something that we even really believed in right yeah yeah for sure and to be to be clear i because i do want to because you make a really good point bailey i i definitely don't want to imply that like you know hoffmeister didn't you know didn't handle it well or like that she was that she was being bullied on stage because that was not the case at all you're absolutely right like she 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 um she handled it just perfectly. I don't. I. I don't think you could ask for her to to have handled it any better than she did. My point is just that, like, he looked like he he looked like an asshole who was being an asshole. And I feel like that policy aside, um, and he had some you know real problems on policy and some of his some of his answers. I just wonder if the thing that hurts him the most in the debate in the debate. I just wonder if it's that he came off looking like such a jerk. Sure, I. So I think, I, mean, I Scott, I agree with you that I think he came off looking uh, a bit like a jerk. Like it's kind of like that indignation of just like, how dare you even question me? Like I know what's up, and he was wrong on a number of those points. I felt like Joy's responses to the questions had more substantive policy in there than his did, but I think his had more substantive talking points not that those are always substantive but like he had good talking points for his base that he's trying to reach and so i think they I both did good for who they're trying I to reach i don't know about that andy because there were times where those talking points were mentioned but they didn't align with the answer that was given so for example there were ties to bringing up being the party of biden and being connected to the biden agenda but then Hoffmeister said, I do not agree 
with Biden on energy policy, right? And gets into conversation or says, you know, I'm not being tied to a political party. I'm tied to, you know, running for Oklahomans and representing Oklahomans, right? And so that made some of those talking points feel like they weren't fitting with with the conversation. So like they didn't I think land there were, well. you know, talking points thrown out with trying to connect with the base. And honestly, I didn't know. I don't know if I took his laughing at Joy mentioning the crime rate as trying to make her look silly, but more so of alignment with the bias that Oklahomans have. Right. 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 And yes. the ways that we demonize California and New York as these dirty, overpopulated places that have all these dangerous people and that Oklahoma is different because its values are, you know, conservative and, you know, family oriented and all those things. And so it was almost an appeal to the base. Like, do you really believe that Oklahoma has bad people like California, New York, you know what I'm saying? Kind of challenging that that bias and that notion. And who knows whether or not that was effective for the base to be like, yeah, like we're not California. And maybe that was a wake up call, like with the national media and the data that's, you know, coming down, challenging that talking point. But I really did see it as a, a place where he was trying to connect to that bias because whether or not it was factual or not, there are Oklahomans who really believe that California and New York are staunchly different places and are completely different Americas. Right. Right. Yeah. It is like that in-group and out-group kind of dichotomy, right? Where he's trying to be like, are you with me or are you with her? And it's, are you with me, Oklahomans, or are you with her and Biden? Like that was the the thing. And as I think we've said on the show before, time and time again throughout this campaign season, it has seemed very clear through their messaging that that Stitt is running against Biden, that Joy is running against Stitt, and that Walters is running against Joy, right? Like it's like a only one of them is running for the race in which they're actually in. And so this is, a, a, this is a go ahead. Well, this, this is this is a question I I have because I absolutely agree, and I mean, you know, one of the notes I made is I think I I think in there, you know, they got like their ninety second opening statement. Um, and you know, Governor Stitt started, and I think he mentioned, I think he mentioned Joe Biden six times in that first 90 seconds. Like, he was literally mentioning Joe Biden like every 15 seconds in his opening statement, never called Hoffmeister by name. Um, but you know, Joe Biden, Biden, the Biden agenda, the Biden party, Biden, Biden, Biden. Um, do we think that's effective? Like, do we think that do we, th- I mean, clearly. Clearly, they have some polling data that has convinced them more effective to run against Joe Biden than to run against Joy Hoffmeister. But like, do we do we think that works? I mean, I saw a mailer for a state house seat today um, that was that was running against Biden, but it's for a, like an Oklahoma state house seat in Oklahoma city. And it was all about like Biden's a failure tax and spend, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, this person is running to beat him. And I was like, those are not related. I mean, the same thing that they were, there was uh, there's commercials or ads, something trying to tie joy Hoffmeister to inflation. And, it, and it's like, 
inflation is high on the entire globe, right? Inflation is like 10% in the UK. Joy Hoffmeister as state superintendent of schools in Oklahoma has zero to do with any of that. But and I don't so, think that's a unique practice, though, for no. this campaign to do that. I think that's textbook campaign of whenever there is a national leadership in office, you know, especially when it's an opposing leadership to disconnect yourself and point to that as, you know, the bad thing. I mean, we see that from top down, even from, you know, our congressional delegation constantly talking about here are the failures of, you know, the the White House or the, the, the Biden administration and blah, blah, blah. Right. And so that's that's to me a standard thing. Um, but it's also not helpful or effective um, to mention and bring attention to your opponent, especially because people have more familiarity with the president than they do with the duties of a state superintendent, right? And so tying to that national voice and, and trying to keep your opponent's name from being recognized is a strategy um, that existed more so than I would say in recent time, because if you look at some of the ads, I would say the negative ads that explicitly mention Joy Hoffmeister didn't start rolling until like the past few weeks, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so yes, especially over the past year when it came to campaign, it was, you know, Biden did this, but, you know, Governor Stitz took this position to stand up against Biden's X, Y, Z. But you're seeing now in recent time, now that things are tightening up on at least mailers and commercials, the name recognition. And so I would suspect we'll start seeing more negative attacks over the next two weeks that aren't just Biden, especially after this debate, because yeah. we'll see that whether or not, I guess I'll see, I'll, I'll say whether or not many of the responses landed for the voters, because it, in the way that I, when I was watching it, cause I, so I went to the debate and I was sitting there live. Um, it didn't feel like those, mentions of Biden were effective or landed to the responses in the conversation about the debate. I mean, that's my thing, right? Like, cause I, I know, like, I know that that's a strategy and I, and I, and I understand, I understand where, I understand where it comes from. I'm just, I'm just always, I'm just curious if that, if that works, you know, one, one thing, one thing that, I do wonder about, and I was I was curious about in the debate, and maybe maybe Joy did it at some point, and, and I just missed it. Um, you know the the way that I think you could, or a way, maybe not the way, a way that you can you can talk about that in kind of political terms is to say that the stick campaign, the stick campaign is trying to nationalize the race, right? They're trying, they're trying to nationalize the race. And, and usually you try to either not, you try to nationalize the race when talking about what's happening locally is not good for you. Um, and um, I was, um, I was a little curious that joy didn't confront that more directly. Like I was waiting for her to say like, Hey governor, You've mentioned Joe Biden. I've I've been counting, Governor. You've mentioned Joe Biden twenty-seven times tonight. I'm just curious. Do you think that Joe Biden's on the ballot in Oklahoma this fall? You're, you, Joe Biden's not on the ballot. You're not running against Joe Biden. Why don't we quit talking about Joe Biden and talk about what you have done in Oklahoma? I mean, maybe that's just 
you know, maybe I'm wrong, but to me, that would have been, that could have been a very effective, a very effective pushback. Scott, I was uh, watching some videos from the election night show, our event in 2018, and we made a joke about that. And I forget who it is now, but there was about the amount of conversation about someone's name who was not actually on the ballot. Um, and so I, I, that is not a, not a new trend for sure. I think Bailey is right about that. Well, uh, friends and listeners, we are drawing near to our time today. Uh, thank you, Scott and Bailey, for being with us here today. Of course. Thank you, Andy. Always a pleasure. Listeners, thank you for being here as well. Um, I hope that you were listening to this before Monday the 24th, because that evening we are hosting a uh, an event called Tacos and Text Banking. If you want to get involved and help us drive turnout this year, uh, we're talking to voters, we're using text messaging to do it. It's surprisingly fun. And this time there'll be tacos and probably some beer and uh, maybe a little music. I don't know. We can do a little cha-cha. We can dance. We can text. Uh, it'll be a lot of fun. So go to our website, uh, letsfixthis.org, or go straight to our mobilize page, mobilize.us slash letsfixthis. I will also put those links in the show notes. Uh, please sign up and join us. We'd love to have you. Great to meet you. Have some fun. Enjoy a taco. Help us talk to some voters. Um, beyond that, we will have some additional events coming up. And then the big, uh, the Peace Day Resistance, right? On election night, we'll be at Tower Theater in Oklahoma City for the election night show with special guests, uh, Oklahoma City Mayor David Holt, uh, AJ Griffin, Erica Lucas. We've got a band... Um, that is um, a, just a bunch of rock star musicians uh, from here in Oklahoma City that are coming together to create a band. Guitars, horns, keyboards, drums, the whole thing. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. It'll be like The Tonight Show or The Late Show or whatever your late night talk show of choice. Think about that, but with friendly faces, talking about uh, local issues that matter to you, some fun, uh, some fun food, some funny jokes, some funny moments, all of that. Uh, that'll be on election night. Uh, stay tuned for more details about that. And uh, let's not forget that November 8th is election day. Listeners, you know it's coming. Please vote. You got to vote. You can vote by mail. You can vote early. You can vote on election day. Just make sure you vote. If you have questions about voting, where to go, how to do it, any of that stuff. If you've never voted before, but you listen to this podcast and you're nervous to say it, it's okay. Shoot us an email at podcast at letsfixthis.org. We are happy to not judge you and walk you through the process. You can ask, you know, for your friend. Whatever you want to do is fine. We'll make sure it happens. All right, uh, because remember that decisions are made by those who show up. Have a good week. <laughs>